Welcome to Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. Zocalo, which means public square in Spanish, is a nonpartisan, multi-ethnic forum providing an opportunity for intellectual fellowship in Southern California. Tonight on Zocalo, we'll meet one of America's foremost intellectuals, Francis Fukuyama, author of a number of books, including, most recently, America at the Crossroads, Democracy, Power, and the Neoconservative Legacy. Fukuyama visited Zocalo to explain his very public break with neoconservative foreign policy. In this compelling talk, recorded live as part of the Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series at the National Center for the Preservation of Democracy, Fukuyama outlines his vision of a realistic Wilsonianism that he thinks ought to guide America's future relations with the outside world. It really is a pleasure to be back in L.A. I lived here for about uh, 10 years, and my family has quite a lot of roots. My uh, grandfather had a hardware store in Little Tokyo, actually just a block or two away from here on First and San Pedro. We just passed it coming in, and so it really is uh, like coming home in many respects. I'm really grateful to Zocalo and to the Japanese American National Museum for hosting this uh, event and allowing me to talk about American foreign policy, which I think has been on the minds of a lot of people. I'm going to say a little bit about this neoconservative legacy and what neoconservatism was and, in my view, where it went wrong, and that will constitute the first part of the lecture. And then the second part, I want to talk about actually the world out there and what I think the problem we're facing in terms of terrorism and uh, Islamism and a few ideas on how to proceed forward because democracy, I guess this is a building dedicated to the preservation of democracy, I think it's pretty important, and I think it's important around the world. And how we approach that issue is one that has concerned me over quite a number of years, and so I want to end up there. This is a personal subject for me because of my own career background. I have a lot of friends in the Bush administration. I worked for Paul Wolfowitz, the former Deputy Secretary of Defense, uh, on a couple of occasions in the Arms Control Agency, and when he was director of policy planning in the State Department. Uh, That's actually where I met Scooter Libby, uh, the vice president's former chief of staff. Condi Rice I actually met when she was just a graduate student. She was the only African-American I had ever met who could speak both Czech and Russian and came as an intern when I was actually at the RAND Corporation here in uh, Santa Monica. Uh, And so we go back a ways as well. And I found myself in the lead-up to the Iraq War. You know, I had started off... I think, fairly hawkish on Iraq. Uh, I'd spent, actually, a lot of my early career looking at the Middle East and Persian Gulf issues. But as the war approached and the administration made arguments in favor of it, it seemed to me that they made less and less sense and they didn't correspond to my assumptions about the way the world would work in a number of different ways. And so in the year prior to the war, I really had decided that it was not a good idea. And I was really quite struck at how differently I thought about this from all of these close friends that I had shared a lot of intellectual assumptions and roots with. And this all came home to me about a year after the war when I was at a speech by Charles Krauthammer at the uh, annual dinner of the American Enterprise Institute where he spoke, and this was after they had found no weapons of mass destruction, where you'd had this uh, insurgency, this vicious insurgency, beginning in which the reconstruction was going very badly and everybody in the room seemed to think that this whole enterprise was actually a tremendous success and this is the point at which I said to myself well I'm just not living in the same world uh, as these people. 
So I wrote a critique of that speech, uh, which came out as an article, and then that really laid the groundwork for the present book. And, and the question that I kept asking myself was, did I just go off the reservation, which is what they think, or did they go wrong in some way in terms of our shared assumptions? And I think it was, in many respects, a little bit of both. So I'm, I'm going to start just by talking about what neoconservatism was. It is a swear word in many circles right now. If you call somebody a neocon, it means something like, you know, you're an American fascist or a militarist or something of that sort. And I think that people do not understand actually how complicated the background of this people that, that thought of themselves as neoconservatives was. And also how I think in many ways the actual arguments used to advocate the war did not actually follow from many of the underlying beliefs that neoconservatives uh, developed over the years. Now, as you may know, this whole movement, in a way, got its start at City College of New York in the late 1930s and early 1940s. It was part of the radical student politics at the time. Uh, almost all of the original neoconservatives, Daniel Bell, Nathan Glazer, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, Irving Kristol, who is William Kristol's father, were all people on the left. And in fact, there's this famous story about the cafeteria First of all, these were all second-generation children of first-generation immigrants to the United States, many of them Jewish, but some like Pat Moynihan, Irish. And I think that that situation of being an outsider to the American establishment colored their perspective in very important ways. It put them on the left. It made them understand what it meant to be an outsider to power. And there's a famous story, actually. They were so far on the left that in the cafeteria at CCNY, there was this famous alcove one and alcove two. Alcove one was Trotskyite and alcove two was Stalinist, and they had all of these internecine fights that people on the extreme left uh, used to have. But by the end of the Second World War, many of them, like Bell and Glazer and the Elder Crystal, had gravitated either to the center or someone to the right because I think the experience of the Soviet Union showed them that just causes pursued obsessively and with that concentration of power produced unanticipated and actually monstrous consequences in terms of the Gulag and the Hitler-Stalin Pact and all of the terrible things that happened in the Soviet Union in the 1930s and 1940s. And it also, I think, demonstrated that American power could be used for moral purposes and the liberation, helping to liberate Europe in fighting Japan in the Pacific War and in maintaining a post-war order that supported democracy around the world in the course of the Cold War. And so this, in a sense, was the origin that starting out on the left and, and coming to the right by that route, I think, really made people with that background quite different so that when the civil rights movement hit, you know, they were not like many American conservatives at that time in favor of this old segregationist order. They were very much in favor of the civil rights movement and universal equality. And to this day, I think their interest in democracy really comes from this belief in the universality of human rights. You're listening to Francis Fukuyama on the neoconservative legacy and the future of American foreign policy. This is Zocalo. On Tuesday, August 15th at 7 p.m., Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series and the Los Angeles Times editorial pages invite you to attend Rich Friends, Poor Us, Is Status Anxiety the Newest Form of Depression? A conversation with filmmaker Nicole Holofcener, author-performer Sandra Singh Lowe, and L.A. Times op-ed columnist Megan Dom. 
This event at the National Center for the Preservation of Democracy is free, but reservations are required. Visit our website to reserve your seats and to download past radio programs. Go to ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. We return now to Francis Fukuyama. Now, the next phase of neoconservatism was really defined by the journal The Public Interest that was founded in 1965 by Bell, Glazer, and Crystal. It was a journal about domestic American social policy, and in a way there's a connection between many of the articles that were written in The Public Interest and that earlier skepticism about Stalinism. Stalinism, I think, taught that extreme social engineering, extreme attempts to remake a society in somebody's abstract notion of justice was something that produced unanticipated, very bad consequences. And in many respects, that was one of the themes that ran through a lot of the writings in the public interest about American social policy. And this was at the beginning uh, of Lyndon Johnson's Great Society programs, these big efforts to expand the American welfare state. And I think a lot of the skepticism about those kinds of programs also had that same kind of theme, that people started out with good intentions, but it was very difficult to control the actual outcomes. And so... For example, aid to families with dependent children, this 1930s-era welfare program to tide widows and single mothers over difficult periods became then a subsidy for single parenthood by the time you reach the 70s and 80s. James Q. Wilson, the great political scientist uh, in his voluminous writings on crime, argued that if you wanted to do something about crime in New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, it was not feasible to go after root causes of crime. That is to say, if you somehow thought that racism and poverty were the deep root causes of crime, you could not hope to end racism and poverty and therefore solve an immediate crime problem. What he argued was you needed to actually treat the symptoms or much more short-term things that you could actually deal with. As a social scientist, this is the article that I most admire because it actually had a real tangible effect on the lives of people, which is an article he wrote with George Kelling in 1982 in The Atlantic <laughs> called Broken Windows, in which he, this was the point at which New York was going down the tubes and you know crime rates were up and there's graffiti all over the New York subway system. And he said, look, if you really want to deal with the problem of order in New York City, start with small things. The metaphor of broken windows is if you have a building with one broken window, Another one will get broken, and if you don't fix it, the norms in the neighborhood basically tell everybody that nobody cares whether the windows are broken or not. And so we said, get the graffiti off the New York City subways, and you will send a message that will have you know, reverberating effects. And sure enough, I think New York City began to do this in the next few years after that article appeared. And I think that was probably one of the things that set that city back on its road to recovery and the kind of city it became in the 1990s. Now point of this, this eventually gets back to foreign policy, I thought that it was very curious that a group of people who had argued about ambitious social engineering, arguing that it is very hard to pull off successfully and that you cannot expect to deal with deep root causes of social problems, should then argue first that the deep root cause of terrorism of the sort that we saw on September 11th was the lack of democracy in the Middle East and that therefore the United States would have the wisdom, ability, tools to bring about a democratic transformation 
not just of this country of 24 million people, Iraq, but of the Middle East as a whole. That seemed to me to run contrary to everything that many neoconservatives had been arguing for the prior 25 years, and therefore was not something that flowed naturally from a lot of their other opinions. Now, why did this happen? I think that part of the answer was during the 1990s. I think if you distill the views on foreign policy that neoconservatives had, there are a couple that I've mentioned already. Belief in the universality of democracy, the potential universality of democracy and the universal applicability of human rights, the skepticism about ambitious social engineering, but also, third, a belief in the potential moral uses of American power to support democratic world order, and then finally a skepticism about international organizations like the United Nations to bring about these kinds of ends. And I think what happened in the course of the 1990s was that the principle of the moral uses of American power basically won out against the skepticism. If you think about it, these principles are clearly in collision because the one says, yes, you can use power to bring about good results, and the other principle says, no, you actually ought to be very careful about the use of power because you don't know what the hell you're doing in a lot of cases. And I think that one of the consequences of some of the internal discussions and also the rise of the arguments made by Bill Kristol and Bob Kagan and the Weekly Standard in the late 1990s emphasized the power dimension uh, very much over the cautious, skeptical dimension, and I think led directly to the advocacy of the war that you saw. Now, I think that there were three broad misconceptions about the way the world worked that were embedded in the way that both neoconservatives outside the administration and also the Bush administration itself, misconceptions about the way the world worked that led to, I think, the foreign policy <laughs> fiasco that we, we have in front of us, the first has to do with preemption or preventive war. Second has to do with benevolent hegemony and how the rest of the world would react to this exercise of American power. And the third has to do with nation building or our ability to bring democracy and other good things to foreign countries. So let me just go over those briefly in turn. The doctrine of preemption was central, I think, to what's come to be known as the Bush Doctrine. This was first articulated in a series of speeches by the president. It was codified in the National Security Strategy document that the White House published in September 2002. It began from what is, I think, actually an unimpeachable logical observation, which is that if you are facing nihilistic terrorists of the sort that you faced on September 11th, they don't have a return address, they don't have a state that you can threaten in return, then deterrence and containment of the sort we used during the Cold War are not going to work. Uh, you have to proactively go out and get them before they get you. And I think that that was probably a safe observation. I think that was really the justification for launching the intervention into Afghanistan, which quite a number of people, I think, quite reasonably supported. The problem with that doctrine was that it was illegitimately tied to Iraq. And Iraq posed a very different problem. Iraq was not a problem of terrorism. It was a rogue state weapons of mass destruction problem, which is a serious problem, but a problem of a much lower order of magnitude than a terrorist armed with a nuclear weapon, which was really the image that was conveyed by President Bush talking about the smoking gun, maybe a mushroom cloud, and so forth. And what the administration was arguing, basically, was not for preemptive war. Preemptive war is something that like happens like in June 67 when the Egyptian Air Force is massing to attack Israel or when if we had seen the Japanese fleet outside of Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941 and we'd attack them, that would be preemption. That's what preemptive war means. 
what the administration was really arguing for was preventive war, which is when you see a threat that is only going to emerge months and probably years down the road and you take action now to head that off. Preventive war, in that sense, has always been regarded as much more problematic, both morally and prudentially, by a lot of statesmen. The great uh, German statesman Otto von Bismarck, who had a pretty strong stomach for the use of military power, said that preventive war was committing suicide because you were afraid of dying. You know, basically you would get into trouble uh, if you did this sort of thing. And if you think about our experience in Iraq, you can see why that's the case. Because if you're actually worrying about a threat that will only materialize some years down the road, it actually requires that you be able to predict the future, not just in terms of the capabilities of countries that may threaten you, but all of the complex interactions, political interactions of other leaders and how they will react to different proposals and changes in the international environment and so forth. And as it became absolutely clear when we did not find the WMDs in Iraq, we didn't even know what the Iraqis had in the present, much less what they would have three, four, five years down the road. And I think that is a fundamental problem with any preventive war doctrine, and that is why these doctrines are really not Uh, I think, the way to deal with any kind of non-proliferation problem. That's preemptive war. The second issue really had to do with benevolent hegemony. Uh, The question uh, that should have been asked by everybody prior to this war was, how is the rest of the world going to react to the United States intervening more or less unilaterally to fix this kind of problem? Now, I believe that many people in the administration actually had a pretty benign view of American intentions and In fact, Kagan and Crystal in the late 1990s wrote an article where they posed this question. Well, they basically argued in favor of a kind of benign hegemony, that the United States uh, is a very powerful country and the United States will take care of rogue states, uh, WMD, terrorists, human rights abuses, all of the problems that happen because nobody else can really deal with this. So the question naturally arises, well, how does the rest of the world react to this? And they, they had an article in which they speculated about it and they said, well, actually the world is not going to object to this because they understand that American foreign policy is simply more moral than that of other countries. Um, Now, (laughs) this is one of these things that (laughs) seems rather, it doesn't read as well in retrospect as it perhaps did at the time. And I think that there was a really big failure to understand these larger currents of anti-Americanism that were developing in the world, I think, long before the Bush administration got on the scene, but which the Bush administration stoked in tremendous ways. You're listening to Francis Fukuyama, one of America's leading intellectuals, speaking about the neoconservative legacy and the future of American foreign policy, recorded live as part of the Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series. This is Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A., The Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series has thought-provoking events all summer long, including on August 15th, Rich Friends, Poor Us, Is Status Anxiety the Newest Form of Depression? A conversation with filmmaker Nicole Holofcener, author-performer Sandra Singlo, and LA Times op-ed columnist Megan Dom. For information on upcoming Zocalo events and to download past radio programs, visit our website, ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O. L-A dot O-R-G. When we return, Francis Fukuyama outlines his vision of a realistic Wilsonianism to guide America's future relations with a globalized world. Stay tuned to Zocalo.
Tibet once had scribes copy its ancient texts. Today, exiled Tibetans do the same work by computer. I do not say information technology is free from any bad thing, but this is one of the better technology available to us. Discover the changes ahead for Tibet as high tech comes to the Himalayas, a special series next week on Day to Day. Weekday mornings at 9 on 89.3 KPCC. The next edition of Air Talk comes your way Monday morning at 10 here on 89.3 KPCC. I'm Larry Mantle inviting you to join me as our guests will include linguist Jeffrey Nunberg, author of Talking Right, how conservatives turned liberalism into a tax-raising, latte-drinking, sushi-eating, Volvo-driving, New York Times-reading, body-piercing, Hollywood-loving, left-wing freak show. Air Talk, Monday morning, 10 o'clock, here on 89.3 KPCC. Welcome back to Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. We return now to the neoconservative legacy and the future of American foreign policy with Francis Fukuyama, recorded live as part of the Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series. The United States today spends as much on its military as the rest of the world combined. I'm not really sure that there's another period where you could go back to where you see this kind of imbalance uh, in the overall balance of power. And it means that the United States simply has the ability to affect countries around the world militarily, economically, politically, culturally in a way that they cannot reciprocate. You can reach out and touch a regime 8,000 miles away, overturn it, and nobody can really do that to the United States. And so I think that this, in a sense, structurally creates these conditions where anti-Americanism is rampant. People do not like this lack of reciprocity. As I've heard countless non-Americans say, you know, American presidents think that they are accountable to American voters, but I wish I could vote in an American election because what an American president does affects my country and my well-being as well, but I have really no way of registering my opinion. And you could see this already in the Clinton years. All of the opposition to globalization was, in a sense, an opposition to a set of economic policies that many people, including many close American allies in Western Europe believed was being foisted on them. It was a kind of anti-statist, anti-welfare state model that Americans may prefer but Europeans didn't like, and it was being forced on them under the banner of globalization. And so already this kind of resentment was very evident uh, long before you got into the uh, lead-up to the Iraq War. And at that point, I think, you know, the style of the Bush administration took over, which simply, <laughs> you know, that there's a certain Texas style. It just doesn't play very well in Berlin or Paris or other places. Well, not to speak of New York and Boston. And, uh, <laughs> um, right, so that was the problem with benevolent hegemony. The third area, I think, of grave miscalculation really had to do with the requirements for rebuilding Iraq as a democracy. And this is the area, I guess, in which I find the total lack of preparation for what would come after the active phase of combat truly astonishing. The Pentagon expected to be able to go down to 25,000 troops by the end of the first summer, the summer of 2003, and then to be out of the country entirely sometime in early 2004. And so you can only do that if you go into the war with the absolutely most rosy assumptions about what would happen Otherwise, in other words, you kind of assume that in some sense democracy is a default condition that all countries will revert to once you just get rid of the, you know, you do the heavy lifting of coercive regime change and get rid of the tyrant, and they simply did not 
understand democracy to be actually something quite difficult to put into place, that it's a series of institutions that have to be built painstakingly over a long period of time. It does not come naturally to many societies or many cultural, structural, other kinds of factors, uh, ethnicity and you know, religion and other things that make uh, democracies uh, in some lands very difficult to bring about. Now, the question is, why did a group that was this smart make so basic a mistake about what would happen in Iraq after the war? In trying to think this through, there's a couple of answers that I've come up with. One has to do with the very peculiar way in which the Cold War ended. Many of the proponents of the war, Paul Wolfowitz, Richard Pearl, had been in the Reagan administration in the 1980s when the basic argument was, do you coexist with the Soviet Union and you know, negotiate arms control agreements with it because this is a system that's going to be around forever? Or do you believe that it is an evil empire and, and it's basically rotten at the core and that there's a broader striving for democracy that you know, may one day sweep it away? As President Reagan himself said, it's going to be in the trash bin of history at some point. And believe me, in the 1980s, all of the centrist, well-meaning foreign policy experts thought that that latter position was completely nuts. But in fact, that is exactly what happened at the end of the Cold War, that the system collapsed of its own moral inconsistencies with virtually not a shot fired. The Ceausescu's and maybe a couple hundred people in Romania were killed, but the regime change from communism to some form of democracy happened virtually overnight within a miraculous seven, eight-month period in the year 1989. The Berlin Wall came down. And I cannot help but thinking that that experience of being proven so dramatically right and seeing that dramatic transformation didn't in some way affect the thinking of people as they looked forward to what would happen in Iraq. The other specific problem, I think, had to do with the Iraqi emigre community because there's a lot of Iraqi emigres in the United States in the Detroit area. And by this, I don't mean necessarily Ahmad Chalabi. There's a lot of people who came out of Iraq And a lot of them were saying that Iraq, of all the Arab countries, should be the one that will democratize successfully because it has the largest middle class, a lot of well-educated professional people. It was always a center of learning and sophistication in the Arab world. And so these people ought to be able to do it if anyone can. The problem, I think, with that, and I think that the administration listened to a lot of people in that community, but the problem, I think, was that they were simply out of touch with what was going on in Iraq itself. They had all left in the 1970s or even earlier. They simply did not understand how Iraq had regressed in terms of the return of tribalism, in terms of the return of religion, fundamentalism, and so forth, and simply did not understand. Nobody really understood what was going on on the ground in Iraq. And so I think that accounts for the extraordinarily rosy assumptions that led to the war. You're listening to Francis Fukuyama on the neoconservative legacy and the future of American foreign policy. This is Zocalo. On Tuesday, August 15th at 7 p.m., Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series and the Los Angeles Times editorial pages invite you to attend Rich Friends, Poor Us, Is Status Anxiety the Newest Form of Depression? A conversation with filmmaker Nicole Holofcener, author-performer Sandra Singh Lowe, and L.A. Times op-ed columnist Megan Dom. This event at the National Center for the Preservation of Democracy is free, but reservations are required. Visit our website to reserve your seats and to download past radio programs. Go to ZocaloLA.org. 
That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. We return now to Francis Fukuyama. Let me talk a little bit about what I see as the problem facing the United States in this post-September 11th period. I was not actually dealing with foreign policy. A book I had written at that point was on biotechnology, actually, and I was kind of dragged, despite myself, back into foreign policy after September 11th because of all of the dramatic events that had happened and trying to figure out what was this thing that we were facing. And as a result of you know, a lot of thought about what that threat is and how to deal with it, I have come to some tentative conclusions that I lay out in the book. There is one view of what we are facing that I think is wrong. I get this in a lot of emails that are sent to me by various people that basically say the following. Don't you understand that these terrorists are Muslims and the problem is the religion uh, Islam and that Islam mandates suicide bombing and jihad and death to infidels and basically this religion has never reformed itself and that's the basic core of the problem. And I believe that this is actually a very wrong view that what we are facing is really actually an ideology that is obviously based uh, very much in religion, has religious roots, but in many respects the ideology comes as much from 20th century Western doctrines as it does from any traditional form of Islamic practice. The last thing that, that this kind of terrorism represents is any kind of a resurgence of a traditional practice of Islam. If you think of what it means to be a Muslim in a truly traditional Muslim country, first of all, Islam is a very legalistic religion. It consists of a series of social rules, and what it means to be a Muslim is to conform to those social rules. The social rules are set for you by your family, first and foremost, by the local mosque, the local imam, by the state itself that in many respects supports those religious practices. And someone growing up in that kind of society actually knows perfectly well who he or she is. As long as you're in conformity with those rules, that is really your identity. The problem that I think we are facing actually does not come from that kind of person. The problem that we are facing comes from people that have been actually uprooted out of that kind of traditional society, whether in the Middle East or, much more typically, in Western Europe, where they do not live in a society that supports those Islamic rules and that Islamic identity. And I think that that is really the cause of the, I guess it's the psychological basis of the openness to embrace these kinds of extremist doctrines. If you think about where a lot of terrorists have come from over the past five years, many of them have been bred in Western Europe. Mohammed Atta, the ringleader of the September 11th attacks, was an engineering student trained in Hamburg, came from a middle-class Egyptian family. This guy, Zacharias Moussaoui, that was just convicted in Alexandria, grew up in a French orphanage. Mohamed Bouyeri, who slit the throat of the Dutch filmmaker Theo van Gogh, uh, was a second-generation Dutch citizen who spoke fluent Dutch, went to a Dutch high school. Many of the other, the, the July 7th bombers in London were, again, second-generation British citizens that had been, you know, eating fish and chips and drinking beer and, and doing what 15-year-old uh, Brits do until they uh, were converted to this kind of radical Islam. And all of that suggests that actually what you're seeing is not an acting out of any kind of traditional Muslim identity, but actually the lack of identity that comes when someone from that kind of a culture suddenly finds himself or herself caught in a world where the surrounding society 
basically threatens or does not support that cultural identity. And that's why I think many of the terrorists are actually second or third generation immigrants to Western Europe or to other countries because the first generation keeps the mores of the, of the old country. Usually they come from rural parts of Pakistan or Turkey or Morocco, very poorly educated. But the second generation, in a way, despises the parents' cultural identity, but they are not accepted as Germans or Brits or French people and therefore find themselves caught in this identityless situation. And I think that's what really lays the groundwork for this kind of openness to a doctrine that where Osama bin Laden or Zawahiri or another Islamist ideologist tells them, essentially, I'll tell you exactly who you are. You're a member of this global Islamic ummah that stretches from Tangier to Jakarta. That is your identity. It's not linked to your particular place, to your particular saints or the little village that you came from. It's a global universal ideology. Now, if this interpretation of what's going on is correct, it has a couple of implications. One implication is that we've actually seen this before. Everybody, I think, got this very strange impression of who these people were, you know, seeing this bearded guy in a cave in Afghanistan. But in fact, the kind of alienation that produces the susceptibility to this kind of extremist doctrine is, I think, the same thing that drove the anarchists in the late 19th century, that drove people to be fascists or Bolsheviks in the early part of the 20th century or members of the Bader meinhof gang later in the 20th century. And in fact, it's quite interesting, a lot of the recent recruits in Western Europe to these radical Islamist groups are actually white Europeans and they all have the same socioeconomic background. They all come from kind of lower uh, or working class families, poorly educated, don't have jobs, really don't have a future in the modern European uh, welfare state. And that's really the same signature that drove people to join other kinds of radical organizations in earlier historical periods. Now, this is in a way both good news and bad news. It's good news in the sense that we've dealt with this before. It's bad news in the sense that these still are pretty dangerous people. I mean, fascism and Bolshevism were not minor little hiccups when they actually came to conquer particular uh, nation states and, and lead to war. By the way, this interpretation that I'm giving you is not my own original one. There's a French uh, Islamic scholar named Olivier Waugh who wrote a book called Globalized Islam a couple of years ago where he lays out this basic interpretation that he says that it is the deterritorialization of Islam that is driving the radicalization. When you take people out of these established traditional Muslim communities and put them into Western Europe, or when Western Europe or MTV or Britney Spears visits them in Pakistan or Cairo or Amman, you have the same kind of cultural assault on that kind of traditional society. He argues that, in a sense, this could have a long-term effect of perhaps laying the grounds for a depoliticization of Islam that may lead at a certain point to the separation of church and state in Muslim doctrine. Church and state are not separated. Muhammad was both a conqueror and a political leader at the same time that he was a prophet, and that's largely been true in most Muslim countries. It was also true in most European countries up through the end of the Middle Ages where every prince dictated the religious beliefs of his subjects until the Reformation and all of the wars that came out of this. A lot of people who have been looking at the world of Islam have said, well, the problem with Islam is that there's been no Reformation, there's no Muslim equivalent of Martin Luther. And 
Olivier Waugh has this slightly impish suggestion. I don't know if any of you here are Lutherans, but this is where I get to uh, say something insulting to you. But he, he argues that, that actually the Muslim Luther may be living among us, and his name may be Osama bin Laden, in the following sense, that in a traditional Muslim society, the state says, this is your identity, this is the set of things that you have to believe. But if you're a Muslim living in Western Europe where the state does not support that identity, in a sense it becomes an interior set of beliefs. And many of the modern Islamists are arguing precisely that the essence of belief is not your external observance of the laws and rules of the society you live in, but that interior belief in God. And that is exactly what Martin Luther did. He said the Christian faith is not about going to confession and uh, the kinds of visible observances that the Catholic Church uh, dictated. It's actually having a direct spiritual relationship to God. And by most historical accounts, that's what laid the groundwork for the secularization of Western societies in the subsequent 400 years because that allowed people to pursue religion as a matter of private belief without it being supported by the state. And Wa suggests that uh, the seeds for this are now being laid among Muslims in Europe. Now, the problem is that in Europe, uh, after the Reformation, you had roughly 100 years of unremitting warfare that was set off by this new doctrine. And in many respects, I think that that's what's going on in many parts of the Muslim world now with these sectarian battles between uh, Sunnis and Shia and so forth. Now, the further implication that this interpretation of Islamism has is for the Bush administration's policy in the Middle East. The Bush administration has argued very strong, clear idea. They say the lack of democracy is what drives terrorism and that the long-term solution to the terrorist problem is to democratize the Middle East. Uh, I think that if I am right in, or Olivier Waugh is right in this interpretation, they've actually got it almost exactly backwards, that it is actually modernization and its concomitant uh, democracy that actually stimulates the alienation that ultimately drives these identity questions and leads people to be susceptible to this kind of radical Islamism. And so that even though democracy may be desirable in itself in the long run, the short-term effect of the effort to promote democracy is actually going to be more terrorism and not less terrorism. And so therefore, if you're interested in dealing with the problem of terrorism, democratizing that part of the world is really not a stage towards that. Uh, My own view of this is a little bit complicated because I actually believe that in a certain sense, Condi Rice is right when she argues that in the long run, we don't have an alternative, that if you rely on authoritarian regimes in the Middle East to use force to suppress important new social actors that these Islamist groups certainly are, that is not a long-term formula for stability, and that in the long run, if you really want democracy, which I do, you, in a sense, have to take your lumps and you have to go through this painful process of these radical groups um, actually taking power and then working through the process of exercising that power until they come to accept a more democratic framework for uh, succession and the like. But it leaves us in this very odd situation where because of the Iraq war and because of the perceived failure of that whole exercise, the world in many ways has been turned on its head, and I think that what we're going to see as we go forward is now the politics of backlash. And there are many people both around the world and in this country that basically say, well, if President Bush wants X, I don't want X. I want the opposite of X. And so President Bush wants more democracy than I want the opposite of it. In fact, there was a recent poll that said that only 13% of registered Democrats actually now supported democracy promotion, American democracy promotion around the world, down from like 70% in the days of Bill Clinton. 
And that, I think, is the larger problem that we're going to have to deal with, the larger legacy of the Bush administration and of neoconservatism, that things that were actually perfectly good ideas, like there ought to be more democracy and human rights in the world, are now, in some sense, tainted because of the particular way that the administration went about seeking to promote them. And I hope that as we go forward, this is not going to be the permanent legacy, but it will be one that we will overcome. But I really do think that that's the task for the upcoming years. So with that, I will stop speaking, and I look forward to uh, any questions or comments that you have. Thank you very much. You're listening to Francis Fukuyama, one of America's leading intellectuals, speaking about the neoconservative legacy and the future of American foreign policy. Recorded live as part of the Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series. This is Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. Join us for the next Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series event on August 15th as we present Rich Friends, Poor Us, Is Status Anxiety the Newest Form of Depression?, a conversation with filmmaker Nicole Holof Center, author performer Sandra Singlo, and LA Times op ed columnist Megan Dom. To reserve your seats and to download past radio programs, visit our website, zocalola.org. That's Z O C A L O L A dot O R G. In a moment, Francis Fukuyama takes questions from the audience. Stay tuned to Zocalo. Hi, I'm John Beaupre for Pat Morrison. Coming up on Monday, we take a look at a report that lists Los Angeles as the 16th most expensive city in which to do business in the U.S. What can we do to be more competitive? The city council thinks it has some answers. That's Monday, 2 o'clock, right here on 89.3 KPCC. Every day on All Things Considered, we bring you novel ideas and remarkable stories. This is really a new development. Oh, my God, I will never forget that. You can't teach that kind of stuff. You just have it. We can shock them a little, too. Something new, something unexpected, maybe even unforgettable on All Things Considered from NPR News. Weekday afternoon, starting at 3.30 on 89.3 KPCC. Welcome back to Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. We return now to Francis Fukuyama as he answers questions from the Zocalo audience following his talk on the neoconservative legacy and the future of American foreign policy. Mr. Fukuyama, I am a great admirer of yours, especially your book, Trust. Um, I felt safe within your generalizations and the way you saw things and judged them. Can we generalize what has happened with this Iraq thing in a very moralistic way and in a sort of a very general moralistic way that if one starts off with a lie and you go on wrong assumptions, you compound them and compound them and you have not mentioned anything about the retributive aspect of the 9-11 rhetoric which that generalized statement (coughs) as culminating in the disgrace of Guantanamo. 
Sure. I think that we gravely overestimated the threat that faced us after September 11th, and that fear, I think, drove a lot of very unpleasant things. It's one of those things you can't you know, prove absolutely, but I think that for a variety of reasons, that particular fear of a terrorist with a nuclear weapon really was not, the probability of that was pretty low, and it led to uh, quite a lot of very unpleasant consequences. I got a lot of questions about the lying part of it, I actually can go into a long discussion of it because I don't think that on the chemical and biological weapons anyone was lying. I think they were gravely exaggerating on the nuclear side, but they weren't lying in the sense that they knew that there was no nuclear program or never would be and just deliberately made up facts. I think that they did believe that that would happen. I think where they really did lie and there was a lot of deliberate falsehood was in the connection of Saddam Hussein to al-Qaeda and to that whole terrorist network, uh, which in some sense they've officially retracted. Now, on the question of Guantanamo, uh, I think that all of that has been a total disaster. I think that a country that wants to promote rule of law and democracy around the world, I mean, this is one of the larger lessons that I draw from observing the process of democracy promotion over the last couple of generations It has to start in the society that wants to democratize. You don't bring it about primarily from the outside. To the extent that you bring it about from the outside, a lot of times it's through what Joseph Nye calls soft power. It's the example of successful democracies that people want to emulate. It is the kind of normative ideas that that are spread in the world. And if you look at Eastern Europe, I think that was a role that the United States played for many countries like Poland and Hungary during the Cold War. And so I think it's very important when you undermine that kind of moral credibility by doing things like torturing prisoners and keeping Guantanamo open. So the logic of Guantanamo just never made sense to me, that even if all the people there go back to Afghanistan and take up arms again, it seems to me they're not going to do nearly as much harm in that mode as having the prison open does to our general position and to the recruitment of terrorists and so forth. So (laughs) I thought that Don Rumsfeld should have resigned when Abu Ghraib first came out and that they should have closed all those things down right then and said... We're really sorry we won't do it again, but they haven't been willing to do that. Aren't you really giving us a commentary on the level of political dialogue in this country when it comes to foreign policy? Three years ago, anti-war activists in Hollywood were dismissed. Three years from now, maybe neocons will be dismissed. Mm -hmm. Is that really good for the country? Well, obviously not. It's this odd thing that I think that one of the consequences of all the polarization that people talk about is that it is really hard actually to have reasonable discussions based on facts and evidence about policy decisions that aren't immediately escalated into the level of basic principle and, you know, you're for us or against us or you're red or blue or uh, this sort of thing. And it means that there's a kind of middle ground that could be informed by a more reasonable debate that just uh, is, is very hard to achieve. That's one of the reasons that I wanted to found this new magazine, The American Interest, because the purpose of this is, in my view at least, is to deliberately build a kind of centrist space uh, where, you know, people could actually talk about and make arguments without having their motives impugned by positions that that they were locked into five or ten years ago. I'm assuming that you were a signer on the project for the new American century when it was presented to President Clinton in 1998. Mm -hmm. Did it bother you at all that page 51, where it suggested that a Pearl Harbor may be needed, implying that there was a preemptive war coming, Did that disturb you? 
I don't think there was a page. I mean, that letter was only a page long. I don't think there was a page 51. It wasn't the 91-page the no, no. project for the new American Century? No, I mean, they produced a lot of stuff, but that letter was only a page long, and there was nothing as far as I remember about Pearl Harbor. No, at that time, the Iraqis had just kicked out the UNSCOM weapons inspectors, and the international community was not doing anything about it, and so we just thought that the Clinton people were being a little bit too blasé about it, but at that time... The option on the table was not invasion of the country. It was really, you know, maybe you can do something with uh, to try to, you know, encourage a coup d'etat or use the external people to cause trouble internally. But I think uh, invasion was really off the table. Um, I was wondering if you could clarify one point about the neoconservatives and the idea that there are several groups, as there are in any political organization or group. The question I have is how do you set yourself up as diverging from people like Condi Rice and others when neoconservatism is basically based on a Straussian principle of a noble lie to the public, like a myth of the nation having a strong moral purpose internationally that gives us common folk a reason to persevere? Well, there are several factual things that are wrong with what you said. I mean, first of all, I don't think Condi Rice knows who the hell Leo Strauss is. You know, I'm sure she's not well, read a page I mean, of... No, basis, no, let me finish. Uh, there is no such thing as a Straussian doctrine of the noble lie. I mean, Strauss does not have a doctrine. All of his books are very dense commentaries on Al-Farabi, Maimonides, Hobbes, Thucydides, uh, Plato. Uh, Plato, Socrates, in Book 8 of The Republic, talks mm-hmm. about the noble lie. Uh, if you read that carefully, and if you read Alan Bloom's exegesis of what that means, I think he's arguing basically for a form of civic religion because... I think he believes that no society without some belief in a transcendental support for its basic values and beliefs is really workable. And so the lie comes up in that way. This idea that somehow Straussians believe that elites should lie to the common people is an idea that was cooked up by this professor at Calgary, Shadia Jury, who <laughs> it's just not, there's nothing in Strauss that supports that interpretation of hers. And therefore, you know, it did not animate anybody in the administration. I mean, there's, look, there's so many things that you can blame them for, but this is about one of the wackiest uh, that, uh, as far as so, I'm concerned. So then, so then what points do you find yourself diverging from them? Well, I mean, on, I just gave you a whole bunch no, of them. I mean, I mean they besides, misinterpreted... Besides their policies recently, philosophically speaking, are there any points from which you diverge? I uh, agree with them in, in many points. I believe that human rights are universal. I do not believe that cultures determine human rights. Uh, I do not believe that just because you're Chinese or Indian that you have less entitlement or because you're female you're entitled to less rights uh, you know, under certain cultural systems uh, than others. I also believe in the long run that some form of liberal democracy is probably the most workable you know, form of political system. But I believe also that this is something that really has to be driven, as I said, by internal forces in every society, and it's not a matter of American foreign policy to, to bring this uh, about, especially by the use of military power. But I suspect most people in this room would probably agree with that, right? So, <laughs> We were talking about a social disconnect mm-hmm. leading to this terrorism. Um, and after the riots in France and even before that with writers like Bernard Lewis, who don't seem to look at it like that, but more in terms of like a thousand-year continuing struggle between the Western world and the Muslim world. And I just wanted to get your opinion on that and maybe get an idea of how this social disconnect fits into that sort Mm -hmm. of perspective. Well, if you ask about why someone adopts a radical position, 
there's a kind of supply side of the ideas, and then there's a demand side. Now, on the supply side, these ideas are not completely disconnected from Islam, and so there is some textual basis for some of the doctrines, but every generation interprets it differently. Suicide bombing was simply not in anyone's lexicon you know, a generation or two ago, and so those things change, and I think they're not an essential part of the religion. So therefore, those things can be interpreted very differently in different generations. It's interpreted very differently in Malaysia and Indonesia than it is in, in Saudi Arabia, all right? So that's why I think there's not a thousand-year kind of essential core to the religion. And then on the demand side, who believes these ideas, you know, when you get a kind of uh, radical doctrine uh, promulgated? And that's where this whole interpretation having to do with identity clicks in because in many ways these radical doctrines were around 50 years ago, but very few people listened to them. At that point, they were all secular nationalists, you know, the Ba'ath parties and Nasser and, and so forth. And so in order to understand why people all of a sudden believe this stuff when they didn't 50 years ago, I think you've got to go to these sociological kinds of explanations that, again, don't have anything to do with the essence of Islam, but they do have to do very much with the particular social situation that young Muslims find themselves in in Germany or France or Holland or you know, places like that right now. I have a question about political realignment. Uh, in your recounting of the rise of the neoconservatives, I guess there's an interesting step where they sort of broke away from the Democratic Party. I guess Norman Potorowitz was insulted yeah. by McGovern. Jimmy Carter didn't give any of them jobs and so forth, and they all went to the Republican Party. Well, Someone with your background, like William Galston from the University of Maryland, has aligned himself with the emerging centrist Democratic Party and the Democratic Leadership Council. Is what you're pressing for in terms of a realistic Wilsonianism more realistic given the fact that the Republican Party has burned its bridges internationally and domestically with, with some of the more moderate principles you've espoused? Is your hope for your foreign policy more capable of being realized with a Democratic Party that's going in the direction that Democratic leaders such as Will Marshall and Peter Beinart are, are pressing, yeah. a rugged Wilsonianism on the Democratic side. Yeah, no, I think it easily could be. I mean, this is what I was saying is in the immediate period after World War II, bipartisanship was actually regarded as a good thing. And uh, Marshall Plan and NATO and the U.S.-Japan alliance and all of these things were actually quite strongly supported by both Democrats and Republicans. And then it's only in the last 25 years that somehow that's become a dirty word or, you know, something really passe. Uh, I think that the Democrats could adopt this. Uh, I think that you could have a kind of centrist coalition, Republicans and Democrats, that would share a lot of these kinds of principles. The thing that worries me, though, is, of course, you've got the kind of red state voters, very nationalistic, all these what Walter Mead calls the Jacksonian Republicans on the right uh, who would not be on board. And I think there's a part of the Democratic Party that's very populist and nationalist on a different set of issues, mostly about economic protectionism that also would not be on board with that. But I do think that in the center of both parties, you do have a lot of people that would pretty much agree with those principles. Um, I'd just like to ask, given the current situation, do you see, propose, prescribe any way to salvage some neoconservative ideals from situations? Well, the ideal, yeah, I think you can salvage the ideals. As I said, I believe that a lot of Americans believe in democracy promotion and you know, the universality of human rights, but you just have to disconnect it with the particular baggage that the Bush administration has uh, laid on it, and I think that'll happen over time. As to whether the neoconservatives themselves, the current incarnation of them, I don't think that they will ever be as powerful as they were in the first four years of the Bush administration. I think, in fact, Condi Rice and 
the second term of the Bush administration has been running away from that legacy as fast as she can in the way they've approached Iran and North Korea. So I doubt that they're ever going to have the kind of prestige or influence that they did at one point. My question is along the lines of oil, particularly most of the detractors of the Iraq war will say that uh, the reason why Bush went in there is having to do with oil concerns. We want their oil, and that's the main reason for going into mm-hmm. Iraq. Um, as we become less of consumers of Saudi Arabian oil and other Middle Eastern countries' oil, what do you think the effect will be towards their stance towards us? On the first issue about was oil important, of course it was important, but I think not in the way that a lot of people on the left argue, that it was the oil industry that was driving them because they wanted special access for economic reasons to Iraqi oil. The global oil industry, including the American oil industry, actually wanted sanctions lifted against Saddam Hussein because they can buy oil from anybody that don't have to have a war in order to get in there. That would have been their preferred uh, position. And so in that sense, that was not the motive. Oil was a motive in a strategic sense that they did not want the stream of revenues going to a country that would build nuclear weapons, you know, support terrorism, invade neighbors, uh, and so forth. And so in that sense, oil was absolutely important but that seems to me actually a perfectly legitimate strategic rationale for you know, being concerned with that area. Um, I think that even the most ambitious, serious energy policy is not going to reduce consumption of Middle Eastern oil to the point that it's going to affect the behavior of any of the local players. We don't have a serious policy right now. You can't have a serious energy policy unless you're willing to tax energy. And that's just been a toxic, radioactive issue for any American politician and particularly this bunch of Republicans that don't like taxes in the first place. And I think that until you do that, you're really not serious about dealing with that whole set of issues. But even if you did that, I don't think it's going to change Saudi behavior except at the margins, and I don't think it's going to affect our overall level of involvement uh, in the near term. So where do we go from here? Is Iraq a wash? Should we just start withdrawing troops, or is there still hope, and should we stay the course? (laughs) Um, I think that the consequences of a near-term withdrawal are pretty clear to see because you're going to have a civil war. I mean, the country is going to disintegrate into a lot of violence. Uh, It is very likely to draw... No. If you think that what's going on now is bad, it can get a lot worse, and it can draw in Turkey and Iran in much bigger ways. You can have, actually, a situation in which you get a quasi-permanent terrorist base in the Sunni Triangle. And so I think that as long as there is a chance of preventing it, I just think that a near-term withdrawal is, is, is not going to be a good policy. Now, there may come a point in the coming months in which it will be obvious that even staying there is not going to rescue anything, but I just don't think we've reached that point yet. You've been listening to Francis Fukuyama speaking on the neoconservative legacy and the future of American foreign policy. This is Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. Zocalo's radio broadcast is sponsored by 89.3 KPCC. Special thanks to the Los Angeles Times and the James Irvine Foundation for making this program possible. For information on upcoming Zocalo events and to download past radio programs, Visit ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. The producer for Zocalo is Peter Stencil. Jade Gao is our engineer. I'm Marcos Fromer. Thanks for listening.
I'm Steve Julian.